Great. Okay. Welcome everyone to Big Tent Spotlight Series with author and historian Anne Applebaum. Big Tent USA is an inclusive coalition of concerned citizens coming together to learn how to be a driving force for positive change in America. We value effective governance, decent, truthful leadership, and a positive solutions-oriented outlook. We focus on democratic ideals like voting rights and current issues like gun violence protection and healthcare. Our Big Tent community relies on us to be their go-to source for carefully curated content and training, all within the confines of our friendly and approachable Big Tent. In the coming weeks, we have more great speakers. Next week on Earth Day at 7 p.m., Dominic Browning, co-founder of Moms Clean Air Force, will be our spotlight speaker. Judd Legume, founder and author of the popular information newsletter, will be our tent talk guest on Tuesday, April 27th at noon. And on Tuesday, May 11th, also at noon, Louise Dubay, CEO of iCivics, will join Tent Talks. So we hope you'll keep coming back to Big Tent and please check our website for more educational and engagement resources. And thank you for joining us this evening. We are so honored to have historian and Pulitzer Prize winning author Anne Applebaum join Big Tent. Anne's compact but potent best-selling book Twilight of Democracy was released last summer to stellar reviews and has only gained in relevance and importance during the presidential election and its subsequent aftermath. At Big Tent, we knew that we needed someone with serious academic chops to moderate this important discussion with Anne. So we called on one of our past and my personal favorite spotlight speakers, Dr. R. Gordon Douglas. Dr. Douglas was educated at Princeton and Weill Cornell Medical College he completed his residency training in internal medicine at New York Presbyterian Wall Cornell and the Johns Hopkins University and Johns Hopkins University. And then he completed his specialty training in infectious diseases at the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He has had a long and illustrious career serving as chairman of the Department of Medicine and physician in chief of New York Hospital, New York Presbyterian Wall Cornell Medical Center these are such big names to say, I just have to say that. As founding president of Merck Vaccines at Merck and Company and chairman of ARIS, a nonprofit biotech company with a mission to develop new effective vaccines for, tuber for tuberculosis, the second deadliest infectious disease worldwide. Dr. Douglas is a member of the National Academy of Medicine and he is my father. Before we start our discussion, I wanna let you know that we have a change to our program tonight given the headlines about the Johnson & Johnson coronavirus vaccine and the fact that we have Dr. Douglas with us tonight. He has agreed to stay on with Big Ten after a discussion with Ann Applebaum to give us an update on the current situation regarding the J&J &J vaccine and we'll take questions at that time. So please feel free to stay with us past six o'clock for this brief conversation. And lastly, if you have not purchased Twilight of Democracy, please support a fantastic local bookstore, Diane's. The link will be in the chat um, and get the book yourself because you're gonna wanna read it after this conversation. And remember to put your questions for Ann Applebaum in the chat. And at this time, I am so proud to turn the call over to Dr. Douglas. Kitty, thank you very much. Uh, we are delighted to have Ann Applebaum with us tonight. She's a staff writer for The Atlantic and a senior fellow at the Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University, where she runs a project on 21st century disinformation. 
She was a Washington Post uh, columnist for 15 years and a member of the editorial board. She's an author of three critically acclaimed and award-winning histories of the Soviet Union, including Red Famine, Stalin's War on the Ukraine, Iron Curtain, The Crushing of Eastern Europe, 1944 to 1956, and Gulag, A History, which won the 2004 Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction. Her newest book, which Kitty mentioned, Twilight of Democracy, with a subtitle, A Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism, appeared in July 2020. Her writing has also appeared in many publications, including the New York Review of Books, The New Republic, The Wall Street Journal, Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, among many others. And we're delighted to have you with us. Um, thank you so much. I'm, I'm delighted to be with you, and I'm sorry that it's virtual or spiritual or whatever this is and not, and not physical, maybe, maybe some other time. You are free to go ahead now. Okay, um, good. So thank you again. Thank you for the invitation. I'm um, you know, f f um, always pleased to talk to any group that describes itself as a big tent because then it you know, definitely includes me. Um, although I, I suppose I should start by saying that the, my book is really not a book about big tents. Um, it's a book about divisions. Um, maybe I'll say a few words about what made me write it. Um, those of you who've read it and or, or, or flipped through the, to the first couple of pages know that it begins with a New Year's Eve party. Um, and this is a New Year's Eve party that I held in 1999. It wasn't a fancy party. I'm not some kind of fantastic hostess. Um, but the party was um, given at a moment when there was a tremendous amount of optimism in Europe and in Eastern Europe in particular. I was then living in Poland. Um, the party was at a house that my husband and I had bought a decade earlier and had very, very slowly renovated. It was a, it's a 19th century house that had fallen into you know, disrepair. Um, and by 1999, it, was, it had a roof. Um, it didn't have that much furniture, but that's okay. It was all right for a party. Um, and the people that we had to the party were, again, nobody famous or important. They represented a kind of cross-section of, um, you know, friends of ours. There were some came from London, one or two came from the U.S. Um, most of them were Poles. And most of the people there were, I would say, held together by it's not even an ideology. I mean, they were, you could have called them center-right, you could have called them Thatcherites, you could have called them anti-communists. Um, they were people who had been um, a little bit too young to be leaders of the anti-communist revolution in Poland, mostly, but certainly they were people who'd supported it. And they, you know, if you'd gone around the room that night and asked, most of them would have been in favor of a Poland that was democratic, that was um, you know, that, that was where there were free markets, where there was a free press, um, a Poland that was integrated with Europe and with the rest of the world. Um, most of them would have thought of themselves as outward looking um, uh, uh, people. Um, when I started to think about that party again, um, this, ha this, this started to happen two or three years ago on, the on its 20th anniversary. Um, I, I, I began to realize that the, 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 I, I, you know, I suddenly realized that about half the people at the party, you know, who, who, who I would have described as, 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 as fitting into the same general rubric, were no longer speaking to the other half of the people in the party. Maybe this is an experience some of you have had. Um, 
you know, in 2019, I sat down and I thought about it and I realized that there had been this political division in Poland, a real shift in political alliances, um, a shift in a change in, in people's attitudes, and that I could see it through the lens of people that I knew. Um, a part of my friends and a part, some of the group of some of the people who'd been there, of course, are still my friends and still more or less what I would say we, we are, we have the same worldview. But another part, a smaller part, had changed quite dramatically. Um, and they had become members of, this is the polls, although there were changes among my British and American friends too. Um, the, you know, they had become members of, or in some cases, many of them were journalists, journalists who wrote in support of a very different kind of political party. Um, it's, the, it's the ruling party of Poland now, it's called Law and Justice. Um, and it is, um, it's probably best described as a kind of nationalist, I mean, we use the word populist, I don't really like that word, but a kind of nationalist authoritarian party. Um, it's a party that describes itself as the only legitimate political party. They talk about themselves as true Poles, as opposed to, you know, the the the, the traitors and foreigners and you know and and others who constitute the rest of the country. Um, they, as soon as they came to power in 2015, they began an assault on the courts in Poland, which has resulted in you know, division inside the court system. We now have a Supreme Court in, in Poland that is of very dubious legitimacy. It's some of its verdicts are increasingly not recognized um, in other countries, um, but also they began to employ a very different kind of rhetoric and language. Um, and, um, again, nationalist rhetoric and language, um, xenophobic language of a kind that we hadn't heard uh, in Poland in 25 years. Um, I know people like to say, well, of course, this is only to be expected. It's a former communist country. But believe me, there was a 25 year period where we didn't have this kind of politics or this or, or, or these attitudes towards foreigners and outsiders and, 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 you know, and, and, and people of other religions and so on. Um, and they brought all that back and they put it at the center of politics. Um, and some of the people who did that were people that we knew. Um, as I said, by 2015, 2016, they weren't our friends anymore, but we, you know, we, we knew them. And so the book began, it was originally an article in the Atlantic and it began as an attempt to explain why this had happened. And unlike a lot of books that you'll read about Trumpism or about populism, it doesn't try to give you one big thesis or one explanation. Um, I tried to tell the story by looking at specific people, um, one or two who I knew in Poland, one or two who I knew in Hungary, one or two who I knew in America, um, one, a few also who I knew in Britain. And I looked at what drew people to this alternative um, set of ideas. Um, my book is about people who are on the center right there might be other kinds of stories you could tell about people drawn to extremism on the left. Actually, my first three history books were all books about Soviet communism. So I know there can be other forms of, of extremism, but the one that I experienced and that I, you know, that I, that I witnessed um, was a move of people who had been in the center right towards a much more extremist radical right. Um, and the explanations I came up with, as I, as I if, if you read the, if you read the book, you'll see that there, you know, I, I, I tack the, I look at the problem from different perspectives. Um, um, I think the most important thing, though, to understand is that we're talking about a group of people who were, for a variety of reasons, very disappointed. Um, whether we're talking about my friends in Poland, whether we're talking about Laura Ingraham, the Fox News presenter, who is one of the subjects of the book. Um, whether we're talking about my friend Roger Scruton, who was a 
um, the British philosopher who became a kind of lodestar and, and was a sort of proto-Brexiteer. Um, many of the Brexiteers um, revered him um, as, as their, their kind of ideological leader. Um, these were people who were profoundly disappointed with their countries in some cases, with modernity in other cases, um, with the direction of economic and demographic change in some cases, um, and in a few cases, disappointed with their own careers. In other words, um, the, you know, their careers as mainstream journalists or as politicians weren't going well, um, being part of, you know, parties that, um, you know, that, that were, um, that were, you know, that, that were sort of adhering to what had been the rules of politics up until then weren't benefiting them. Um, and they began to see opportunities for themselves in more extreme and more radical movements. And some of them became the spokesmen and voices um, for those movements. Um, but, but, but this disappointment is, um, it's important to understand, um, in particular, again, I think speaking to this group, it's important to think about and explore. Um, when we talk about people who have become disillusioned with their democracies or disappointed with the directions that their countries have gone, have gone in or have become so nostalgic for previous eras, you know, when they look back on, uh, you know, on other times and places and they imagine those to have been better. Um, sometimes what they're talking about is something real or something that's worth acknowledging that, that mainstream politicians also should, um, should understand. So, you know, for many, for many polls, the transition from democracy, I'm sorry, from communism to democracy, of course, it meant there was more freedom. Of course, it meant there was more prosperity. And I should stress that in Poland, we're not talking about um, people who were somehow left behind. I mean, my friends and the people who I wrote about are not victims of the transition. They are not people who were impoverished by it. On the contrary, um, Poland is a, is a real success story. I mean, really almost everybody who lives in the country has a higher living standard now than they did 20 years ago. And they certainly have a higher living standard than their parents. So if you compare anybody to their parents' generation, they are better off. I mean, this is true of all social classes um, and geography around the country. Um, nevertheless, there are people who felt that in this tumultuous period of change, that in this shift from one political system to another, you know, from a country that was very isolated to one that's very integrated um, to a country that was, you know, almost hermetically sealed to one that's really where it has open borders or open borders to Europe and where it's really part of the world. Many, there are many people who felt that something was lost, um, whether it was the small town experience of my childhood or the intimate relations that we had with people when I was growing up or the status that I had as a coal miner and, you know, which I don't have anymore in a society that really values entrepreneurs and, um, you know, and, and, and people with money. Um, there's a sense of some kind of loss or some kind of disappearance of status or sometimes a disappearance of a way of life. And this is actually something that's very typical of any country that goes through really rapid change. Um, and so in the book, I also talk a little bit about some earlier eras where you had some similar forms of nostalgia or disappointment um, with modernity. One of them is 19th century Germany, which was an era when there was also very rapid industrialization. And you had this phenomenon of nostalgia, people saying, well, there was a better, pure, you know, better time when, you know, when, when, Germ when people were real and we didn't have all this petty squabbling politicians and we just had real leaders, you know, real men who led the way. Um, and these, uh, some, of the, some of that nostalgia played into what later became 
um, in Weimar Germany, again, a sort of nostalgia for desire for a more unified um, political system. I mean, you had a similar feeling in 19th century France. I write a little bit about the era of the Dreyfus trial. This was a time of great also political division inside France when people chose sides and people who'd previously been allies, somewhat like me and my friends in, in the 1990s, um, suddenly found themselves on opposite sides of other of other of the of, of the big issues of the day. Um, also often to do with the nature of the nation, who are we, what kind of country are we? And this is also, of course, a period of great rapid ideological and um, ideological and and political change. Um, and in in those times, people become nostalgic. Um, they they look for something older. They imagine there could be something different. And it's really in this disappointment with contemporary society that you get these forms of radicalism. Um, because really, if you if you begin to say to yourself, well, you know, my society, as for example, the philosopher Roger Scruton did in England, you know, my society is dead or dying. You know, I, I'm, you know, he he wrote a book in which he spoke, he's a, he's an English philosopher, and he wrote a book in which he described as a funeral oration for my country. The English values that I grew up with are gone. If you really feel that, if you feel that something has disappeared, then 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 why are you invested in the system as it is? I mean, why not just smash it up or break it or create some break with the present, move into the future? Um, you know, this is where you know radicalism comes from. Um, and you can see um, you can you can see all across a lot of modern societies this this kind of radicalism. Um, you know, ha happening now. And I really think it's it's not a coincidence. And we live in an era of very rapid, as I said, economic change, demographic change. And also, as I discuss in the book, um, very rapid and very profound informational change. Um, you know, really, when you take a step back and you look at all the societies that I wrote about, again, I write about Britain, I write about the US, I write about um, Poland and Hungary, I write a little bit about Spain. Where I did some reporting a couple of years ago, um, but you really you could you, you know you could have included France and Germany, um, and others as well. When you look at all these these kinds of countries where you have this growth of nostalgia and this desire for unity and this frustration with politics, one of the unifying themes is the nature of modern information. You know the way that people get and process political information has changed. Um, there's an enormous amount, you know, there's an enormous amount of information. There's a kind of cacophony out there. Um, there's a very wide range of views. Um, there are um, angry and bitter arguments um, taking place all the time. Um, and if you're somebody who is susceptible to those kinds of, you know, or bothered by those kinds of disputes and arguments, then some kind of desire for silence, um, some you know, some idea that couldn't, couldn't we just make it all silent? Couldn't we just have one leader? Couldn't we have unity? Um, there's a part of the population that will always, um, that will always desire that. Um, as, as some of you may know, and you know, forgive me if I'm telling you things that, you, that, that, that you've heard from other speakers, um, the nature of modern social media also contributes to this sense of division and, and, and splintering um, simply because of the way in which the rules of public discourse are being set by the internet companies. So you have um, you know, Facebook and Twitter and, 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 and YouTube and many others, um, when, they, you know, when, when, they, when they decide what they're gonna send to your newsfeed or what they're gonna recommend to you, um, they don't recommend things on the basis you know, that this is a, an exceptionally good rational argument or this is a particularly civilized 
form of conversation. They don't, they're not looking to create civil discord. They're looking, they're looking to create emotion, anger, um, and ultimately division. Uh, and one of the effects of that, again, is the sense that people begin to live in alternate, um, you know, you, people now live in, you know, these very different, very alternate um, media spaces. They are very apart from one another. Um, they don't see that they have much in common anymore. And this too also creates a sense of disillusion and disappointment with centrist and mainstream institutions. Um, I'll end this little introduction and then I'm happy to take as many questions as you want by reminding you of what exactly it was that happened in the United States on January the 6th. Um, this was not a illustration of Republicans against, Democ against Democrats. It was not a moment where we were witnessing polarization. Um, what we saw was a group of people who had become disillusioned with the system itself. They, 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 they'd lost their respect for Congress, for the office of the vice president, for the office of the speaker. Um, they arrived at the Capitol wanting to disrupt the process because they no longer believed in it. Um, and this, of course, is the end result of the kind of disillusion that I was talking about. I mean, once you cease to believe in the institutions, once you um, believe that democracy is so flawed or so pathetic or, or so, you know, or the, or the politicians are so uh, despicable that they don't have to, that the rules and procedures don't matter anymore, this is when you get anti-systemic movements. Um, so as I say, I saw, I've seen it in the version of a, of a, of, you know, the, of a kind of political revolution in Poland. We had a version of it in the United States, um, you know, before, during, and after the last election. Um, and there are versions of it um, that you can see unfolding in other countries as well. Um, so again, the book was an attempt to, to explore what some of the causes of this were, to explain um, some of the attractions of authoritarianism. And also I should say finally, to explode some of the myths we have. I mean, most of the people who I wrote about are, I mean, they're not especially wealthy, but they're not, they're not impoverished, they're not unemployed, they're not outsiders, they're not victims. Um, they're all people who were ensconced in the, they're kind of elite. I mean, they're journalists, they're politicians, they're, 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 you know, they're political spin doctors. They're people who are ensconced in their political systems who had nevertheless become disillusioned, who nevertheless wanted to see radical change. Um, and so this, this tendency towards, um, towards radicalism is something that can take place at any, at any level of society. Um, I'll stop there because I'm, I, you know, it's, it, okay. I'm more interested in, in, in hearing your questions and responses. Good. And that was terrific. And th thank you very much for that. Um, we, we will have a bunch of questions, so uh, I hope we can get through at least uh, a majority of them. <clears throat> you know, you, you start off talking about your party, your New Year's Eve party uh, in Poland, which was very interesting and how some of your friends diverged in thought after that. And the question is really, did they change or did you change or did was it a 50-50 split? So it's hard for me to say, I mean, I think I haven't changed. I, I think my views are, are consistent with what they always were. They would say I have changed. You know, they would, they would, they would make the argument that I'm not conservative anymore. I'm not center right anymore. I, you know, I don't really know what these terms um, even mean now. Um, but I think the, the better way to look at it is that the situation changed um, and that 
you know, and, and you can look at it this way if you look at the, you know, the, the, the same group of people who are my friends in the United States. You know, the Cold War was a unifying moment. Um, and if you look in, for example, if you look in the US, who were the, who were the cold warriors? Who were the anti-communists in the United States? Um, they were actually, it was, it was actually a coalition of people. It was people who were interested in realpolitik, who worried about Russian foreign policy, people who were concerned about nuclear weapons, um, people who were concerned about human rights and democracy. You know, there was a lot of people who were cold warriors for that reason. Um, or it was people who were very religious um, because they believed that communism was atheist, which it was, of course. Um, and they believed that fighting against communists was a kind of religious duty. One of the things that happened when the Cold War ended is that that broad coalition, which in the US you would call, I don't know, Reaganite or Cold Warrior or, or center-right, that coalition began to break up. And you could already see it breaking up actually in the 1990s. Um, probably it was artificially held together um, after 9-11, um, it's a sort of that general group stayed together for a longer period. Um, but, but more recently, and particularly under the pressure of the Trump presidency, you've seen it, you know, you've seen it, it break up much more comprehensively. I mean, something very similar to that happened in Poland. So when the issue was communism, and when we were all together in the fight against that, um, then, you know, then that was the issue. And, and that became the, um, you know, that became the thing that unified us. Um, when the issue was, um, should Europe accept some refugees from Syria? Um, then suddenly we all discovered that we had different views. Um, or when the issue was, um, you know, should, you know, how integrated should Poland be to the rest of the European economy? Then we had different views. Um, and so the, the nature of the issues changed and the political alliances changed too. And, and the, the, thi the things that we had in common, we no longer did. And I think this is something that's happened to the Republican Party in the United States. Um, you know, and, you know, and, and really to, to center-right parties all over Europe. It's very similar, very similar thing happened in, in Britain as well to the Tory party, which is, I think, now unrecognizable, um, not very, very different to what it was 10 years ago. Good, good, thank you. I'm gonna just switch gears for a second. One of the things that I found uh, fascinating in your book was sort of looking for root causes behind all this, you know, and was Karen, Stenner's work showing that a third of any population has this authoritarian predilection for order and homogeneity versus uh, the remainder of the population that has this more libertarian uh, predilection. And, you know, if that's really true, then um, the, the, the this, this, this will go on relentlessly forever. And you have to, you know, if you are to maintain democracy, it's going to take constant vigilance and constant work. Um, so, is, is, that, is that holding up? And So, you know, if you think about it, the, the founders of America knew this to be true. I mean, they, when, when they were writing our constitution, they were they were all reading the histories of the Roman Republic. Cicero was a was a was known even in a kind of pop form um, in in the 18th century in America. Um, they were reading the histories of the fall of Rome. They were reading about the histories of Greek democracy, and they were very hyper conscious of the fact that there is a human tendency to follow demagogues, that there that that democracies often collapse into tyranny. Um, and they actually structured, you know, including some of the more awkward parts of our constitution, 
um, for exactly that reason to prevent you know, what they feared, which was demagoguery, the tyranny of the majority. Um, and they put all the checks and balances of our constitution in it for exactly that reason. Um, and throughout quite a lot of American history, you know, we were very, Americans were very aware that their yeah. system was fragile and could be fragile. Um, I think that something happened though in the, um, you know, in the era after the second world war and in particular after 1989, when we had this moment of great liberal democratic triumph, um, that many of us became, and I'll return to Karen's work in a second, many of us became convinced of the inevitability of democracy, you know, that it was so right, obviously right. the right system, that there was nothing special that we had to do, you know, we could just kind of leave politics to the politicians and the rest of us could go on whatever, writing books or making money, and it wasn't really our problem. Um, and we forgot that there is this, there is of course many, you know, there's a sort of human tendency as Karen Center has described, there's a part of the population that's always been uncomfortable with conflicting views. There's a part of the population that has always found authoritarian slogans appealing. It's always been there. Um, and it's really our job if we want democracy to succeed and, and, and be maintained to think about how to integrate those people mm -hmm. and how to make them feel comfortable, particularly with this rapidly evolving multi-ethnic democracy that we live in in America. We need to find ways of, 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 of making sure that our system is you know, works for for everybody who lives in it. Because if we don't, then um, you know, well, well, we've we you know we've seen what can happen. Um, then you can get an anti-democratic or authoritarian movement even inside the oldest um, and most secure of democracies like ours. Right. You know, one um, <clears throat> another thing that sort of surprised me in your book was um, you talk about the elites that it's really the college-educated you know people who are able to um, run the newspapers and be in the government and that kind of thing that are important in this authoritarian uh, movement. But you don't say very much about um, the non-elites, the, the masses that follow. And, you know, we hear hear about uh, like Ann Case and Angus Deaton's uh, deaths of despair and the, the non-college educated white males in this country who have uh, actually decreased by one or two years their uh, life expectancy and because of suicides and drug addiction and that kind of thing. Um, so how, how do you tie those together and, and what, what, what is the importance of the masses that follow the elites? So because there had been so many excellent books by people like Angus Deaton on exactly this subject, my book is not about that. <laughs> I thought, let's have a book that's about you know, the, 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 the extremely well-educated, well-off people who are leading and running um, and, and doing the messaging for these authoritarian movements because they often get ignored. You know, people write about Trump or they write about the working classes and they don't write about this cadre of Fox News, um, uh, you know, hosts in America or their equivalents in other countries. So so it's not that I don't know that, that's a, that those people exist. It's, it's just that, um, it's just that my book is about something different. Um, I also have, um, I mean, of course, economics explain or is part of the explanation for um, for the doubts and the disillusion with democracy. I mean, I think actually the financial crisis of 2008 and nine had a really important effect just because it reduced so many people's faith in the knowledge and competence of our financial elites. Um, 
And I don't think anybody ever really recovered from that, not just in the United States, but around the world. Um, so I'm not, I'm not downplaying how, how important that is. Um, but it's also true that if you look at who supported, and I, I don't mean Republican voters, but who supported the anti-systemic movement inside the Republican party or who supported the law and justice government in Poland um, or, who, or who supported Brexit, which is a slightly different issue, but related um, in the UK, you will often find that they were not all the working classes or they were not all you know, opioid addicts. Um, it was very often middle-class, um, well-off, um, you know, successful people who have also supported these kind of movements. Um, and, and sometimes it's, you know, it, you know the, the, the better division, at least in Europe, it's, it's often more accurate not to talk about it as a class phenomenon, but it's more urban rural or urban provincial. You know, very often it's kind of provincial elites against urban elites or, you know, re, you know regional yeah, yeah. Against, against big cities. Um, so, so, you know, so, so of course, as I said, of course, economics plays a role in this, but it's not the only factor. Um, it's, it doesn't explain, I mean, even I, I saw a study um, it, you know, that came out a, a few weeks ago that looked actually, uh, you know, at the, at, at people who'd been, you know, in the capital on January the 6th and looked at their socioeconomic status and the majority of them were middle-class. I mean, they were not, mm -hmm. You know, this was not a this this was not the poor with their pitchforks storming the palace. These were middle class people um, objecting to democracy. Right. You know, if it did <clears throat> to tie this point back to the one about Karen Stenner's work is it, it what what it says then is if you, uh, for instance, the Biden administration tries to um, upgrade this group of people who are uh, disadvantaged now by providing better jobs, better housing, health care, those kinds of things. Is that going to change their mind? Is that going to swing their vote? Is that going to uh, make a difference? Or can't, because they have this authoritarian predilection, you can't change them. So um, it's, it's a predilection, but it's not a, um, it's not immutable. I mean, so one of the things I like about Karen Center's work is she doesn't talk about authoritarian personalities, which was the old fashioned right, term right. of election, that in circum cer certain circumstances at certain moments, um, people can become disillusioned with democracy. That was her, that was her, that was her argument. Yeah. I mean, I think what the important thing about what Biden is doing, um, and, I, and, I, and I think I, I have reason to think, I mean, I think it's deliberate. It's not just, um, you know, it's not just that he's, you know, you know, attempting to help people on the lower end of the of the economic scale, but it's also that he's seeking to change the subject, um, so that what we're all talking about from day to day is not culture wars, um, Dr. Seuss, um, the Supreme Court, um, and all these very bitter cultural issues that divide us, but that we're talking about pragmatic, practical economic issues that have solutions um, where there can be, you know, where there can be, I mean, there's a legitimate disagreement about how much money we should spend on infrastructure. I mean, everybody agrees we should spend some money on infrastructure, how much it should be and how it should be bent is it. And, and that's the realm where we could have a useful political conversation that includes everybody. Um, and the more conversations we can have like that about how much money to spend on the local bridge um, and the fewer conversations we can have about existential issues about is America dying or, you know, um, then, then the better our politics will be. 
Um, and so, and, and, and historically, I mean, one of the ways that you can get countries and societies away from polarization is, as I say, to, <clears throat> to talk about issues and themes that are of common interest. Um, and I do think that by focusing on economics, by focusing on fixing the virus, by showing that government can be effective, um, he at least has, at least he has the, you know, the possibility of being able to, um, you know, persuade Americans to, to, you know, to value their politics and their political system again. I mean, whether it can work, I don't know. I mean, we have, you know, four, four years to try. Yeah, you know, um, <clears throat> that reminds me that uh, one of the things I was going to ask you was your book came out in July, and you ended up, I think, on a fairly... Um, optimistic note, um, you know, at least um, it came out that way to me. And, um, but so much has happened since then. It was a big lie, the election, and then the deni denial of the result of the election, and then uh, January 6th, which you've already talked about a little bit. Um, but have, have you changed your um, optimistic outlook or, I mean, somewhat optimistic outlook, or do you think I mean, it's how much funny. trouble are we in? How do we solve the problem? It's funny. Some people read the end of the book as not optimistic. So it's a, no. it's a I okay. mean, but, but I mean, I, I came to the conclusion um, recently that it's for someone like, like me, like, like us, actually, like all of us on this call, it's really irresponsible to be pessimistic. Um, and I can't say to my young adult children, you know, everything's terrible and democracy is going to die. Um, and I don't think it should be my role to do that. Um, and what, how I ended the book was by saying that politics is radically open. You know, anything can happen. There is no, it is not inevitable. It is neither inevitable that we will go on being a democracy and everything will end, live happily ever after, nor is it inevitable that we will decline and decay. Um, you know, America has had these periodic revivals, these moments of... Of, of reform and revision. You can look at the post-Civil War era. You can look at the progressive era in the you know, <clears throat> late 19th, early 20th century. You can look at you know, the, the, the New Deal era. There've been these moments when, um, when we've managed to restructure our institutions and revive ourselves. Um, and, so, and, I, and, and I'm hoping that that's what will happen. But, but, the, but the point is that there is no guarantee. I mean, it depends what we all do. And how engaged we are and whether we can inspire people to be part of politics again and not passive observers. Um, so so I, I am optimistic that there can be an American revival, that we can pull ourselves together, that we can find um, some kind of new political center, that it is possible, but I do not guarantee it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I can't right. promise you that it's gonna happen. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed. So let's work towards it, which, which brings me to the question of, okay, what can and should big, big tent do about this? Here's a group of very intelligent people who have, who obviously are concerned, they're informed, um, they've worked hard in a number of ways. They've worked hard in the election. Many of them made phone calls, wrote letters, did all kinds of things. Um, what can they do? What, what, what would you advise them to do as a group um, to, um, you know, move forward our cause and prevent the kind of uh, authoritarian slippage that we've seen in the past. Um, and win the 24, 24 election, yeah. Get, get, get bigger, recruit more members, 
um, convince more people of a variety of political views that democracy itself is an important cause. Um, 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 you know, continue spreading the message. I mean, one of the, you know, one of the real, I, I, again, you know, I've, I've said this already, but I'll repeat it. I mean, one of the one of the real mistakes that many Americans made in the last three or four decades was to retreat from public life. Um, and in a way, of course, this is encouraged by the internet. And, and as I said, by the rules of civic engagement on the internet, which are not the same as the rules of, you know, the, the fact, you know, we're having this civilized conversation here today and the kinds of conversations you have with one another are not the same as the kinds of conversations you would have if we were doing it filtered um, through Facebook. Um, and so convincing more people to have those kinds of conversations and to be part of your organization, um, this, is, this is what I think you should do. Um, I, think, I think being involved in, in a nonpartisan way in elections, I mean, being um, registering voters, um, you know, helping man election, you know, you know help, helping be, you know, being a poll worker, um, recruiting people to do those kinds of jobs, um, you know, both in and around elections is also, it's a, it's a really important and, um, you know, it's useful to remind people that our system is partisan. You know, we have two parties, they believe very different things, they argue it out, but there are some parts of our system that are neutral. Um, and, and anybody can participate in that. Anybody can work on behalf of the electoral system. Anybody can, um, anybody can take part and there are all kinds of ways of being civically engaged in, in nonpartisan ways. And I think reminding people of that is hugely important task. It's a very, very important thing to be doing. How about, does, uh, let's change the topic, sorry about that, but does religion play any role here on either side? I mean, religion is a tricky issue. So, um, in 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 you know, I mean, if, in Poland it did, um, which you know, there's more than you want to know. Probably the Polish Catholic Church, which had been for many decades, actually centuries, a kind of national symbol. Um, um, you know, you know, even people who weren't Catholic or who weren't religious you know, paid homage to the idea of the church as, a, as an important national, because of its national role, because of the Polish Pope, because of the role it played in overthrowing communism, became um, over the last decade much more affiliated with one political party in Poland, with what's now the ruling party. Um, and the partisan, you know, the increasingly partisan nature of the church, um, you know, and I, which I think is, by the way, disconnected to the church's own fear that it was losing ground, you know, that in a secularizing society, in a, in a world with open borders where young people were traveling a lot, that it was losing its traditional role. And the church in Poland became the sort of embodiment of this fearful, nostalgic um, and sort of reactionary and backward looking um, vision of the world that is embodied by one part of the Polish political spectrum. Um, I think in the United States, you can't generalize in that way. I mean, clearly there are there's some part of, um, there's some American churches that have a similar function um, and others that don't. Um, it, you know, I think, I, I, I think, you know, I think actually religion, you know, you know, on the contrary, religious leaders and movements could play a really important role actually in building links across society. I mean, um, I, I was, I spoke last night actually to a, um, a you know, a, a synagogue. Um, group and I said exactly the same thing to them. I mean, wouldn't you know? Aren't there ways in which they could reach out to people outside of their community? You know, could they be bridge builders 
um, inside their 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 city. Um, religious leaders could you know could be because they're seen as politically neutral in a lot of places. Um, they could be bridge builders and they could play an important role. I don't think religion has to be negative. I think it can be positive. I mean, there, as I said, there are instances in which it's played this negative role, but it's not, not necessary. Thank you. Can, can we talk a little bit about um, COVID and the, both the, the response to the disease and then the, the, the vaccine rollout? I mean, it seems that um, the, the, some, some of the very authoritarian countries did a great job in controlling the epidemic like China. I mean, they just locked things down in ways in which we couldn't do. And the most liberal democracies of the US and UK to be, uh, to use the example, did very poorly. Um, well, and actually- The vaccine rollout is somewhat the reverse of that. Well, um, I, I've just written about this. Actually, the, Many democracies did very well. Um, yes. Taiwan, South Korea, Germany, Norway, right. Switzerland, Canada, actually. Um, in the first phase of the pandemic, before we had vaccines, it turned out that the real division was not between democracies and autocracies. There were a lot of autocracies that did really badly, too, by the way. You know, yeah. Russia had a terrible, yeah. very high rate. Um, the division was how much social trust you have, how much faith do people have in their public health system and their bureaucracy. Right. Uh, you know, New Zealand is another one that did very well. Um, and, and those countries that didn't have that, like America or Brazil or Russia. Um, and so that was really the, that was the most important division. I mean, now the situation is changing and then, and what matters right now is, are you really good at vaccine logistics? Um, and it turns out that the United States is good at that. Um, we have, you know, National Guard and we have the production capacity um, to make, you know, to, to, to produce this enormous, I mean, you know, the United States is what, I think we're almost at 50% of adults vaccinated now. Yeah. Um, there are some who are, are ahead of us, but nobody is ahead of us in numbers, you know, the sheer numbers of vaccines right. that, that have been given to people. Um, and so the, you know, the, 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 the you know, the, the question of who's doing well and badly is now shifting uh, very rapidly in America's direction. What I'm hoping is going to happen um, and again, I just wrote something about this in the Atlantic. I'm hoping that the US will take advantage of this moment. And fairly soon, as we begin to, we, we're, I think pretty soon we're gonna have a majority of adults vaccinated. Um, but the US begins to direct some of that logistic capacity and capability to the rest of the world. Um, yeah. Having the US be the, I mean, it's, it's you know, the, the US with the, with the vaccines that are the least problematic, um, you know, how, you know, and, the, and the, the capability that we have to produce them in huge numbers and to deliver them efficiently, um, I'm hoping we'll direct that outwards. And, um, you know, it's not that I want to use it to repair our, um, you know, the damage that's been done to America's reputation. I mean, that's part of it, but also just to show, you know, to show again how, um, how both, you know, how we can be both efficient um, and effective um, as well as generous. We yeah, we clearly have an opportunity to uh, lead here yes. on that score. And you know, what one of the things I don't understand is what was in it for Trump to just totally not manage the uh, epidemic, to, to to worse than that, to deny it. I mean, it did. It doesn't. I I don't know how to fit this in with the rest of your thesis. You know, I, don't, well, I mean, that's it. Well, my, maybe it doesn't have anything to do with it. You know? my, we weren't talking about Trump at all. I mean, Trump's, I mean, Trump was a narcissist who was not interested in anybody but himself. Um, right. And, 
he, he saw the pandemic through one lens and the lens was, will this help me get reelected or not? Um, yeah. And so he was only, you know, I mean, even we, you know, we had this, you know, it's grotesque um, set of stories that came out about the early days of the pandemic when they set up this team to manage it. It was supposed to be Jared Kushner was supposed to be running it. And then when they thought initially and incorrectly that the pandemic was only going to affect blue states, you know, New York and New Jersey um, and East Coast states, they thought, well, then we're not going to have to worry about it because it's only, you know, blue states. Yeah. Our yeah. state won't be, you know, won't be affected. And they and they dropped the ball because this is how they saw the world. They were they were instrumental. They were not they were not interested in Americans. They were interested in their own fortunes and their own whether they would be reelected or not. Um, so I, I don't think that's very hard to explain, um, uh, you know, and, and I think he changed his mind once or twice about what the right attitude was, but, but, um, but essentially he never had any interest in Americans. He was not interested in the health of people. He was interested in what it meant for himself and, and his right. power. Right. Um, thank you. What, what about, um, we haven't talked about social media very much, but a lot of people think that social media is one of the driving forces behind um, this change. And sure. also news media, the way in which we get our news now. So again, this is a big subject. Um, another thing I've written about recently. Um, yes, as I said, the rules that social media has set for public discourse um, are hugely damaging. Um, the, you know, social media it feeds the extremism, it feeds emotion, it feeds anger. Um, the algorithms are set not to um, encourage us to engage in civilized conversation, but to be angry, to pass on messages, and, and, and above all, to stay online and, and look at advertisements. I mean, that's, what, that's the purpose of social media um, from the point of view of the companies. Um, but you are right that the nature of broadcast news doesn't help. And I actually think there's a much, a much greater feedback loop between social media and broadcast media than most people realize. Um, you know, very often what you're, when, you know, the, the, you know, when you look at whether it's Fox News or, or CNN, the way in which they've decided what topics they're going to discuss, you know, the debates that they choose are often coming from Twitter. I mean, they're often, you know, almost everybody who's in the news business is on social media. They see what's happening. They see what's trending. And that feeds and shapes their, um, you know, what they, what they present on television. Um, you know, and all, all the flaws of the news media that were there before have just become, you know, sort of hyper, you know, made hyperactive. I mean, the, the short attention spans, um, you know, the need to do everything in very briefly, um, the belief that people won't watch longer and more in-depth programs or they won't listen to them, which, by the way, is often wrong. I mean, one of the, one of the you know, while we have the most, you know, this kind of hyperventilating hyperventilating cable news in America. We also have this explosion in podcasts, um, including, you know, you can listen to some go for, an, you know, the, the, some of the most popular, you know, somebody like, I don't know if you all listen to Sam Harris or some of these other podcasters, they have these, you know, one and two and three hour long conversations with people go very in depth into subjects um, and they can have a million listeners. Um, so clearly what's happening in cable news and on social media is also driving this desire for, something deeper. I mean, actually, the Atlantic, where I work, has had this burst in subscriptions in the last year, partly, I think, for the same reason, because we do run longer articles, and we do try to, I mean, I'm not going to say that everything we publish is perfect, but um, it is. it does try to take subjects more seriously. So there is a desire for that out there. 
Um, but you're right, there is a this kind of death loop relationship between social media and broadcast media that does push emotion, anger, and above all, this political division yeah. that allows people to live in very different worlds. Very different, right. Um, one, one, you know, we, we, we did talk a little bit about, you know, things that we can do going forward. And one of them is what people are worried about uh, the lack of civics education in uh, high school and, and, you know, where, where we're at, even, even further on in college. And um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that and, and tell us your ideas about how we might rectify that situation. It's so I've been in a lot of conversations about civics education and I, I, I you know, I don't, understand the American school system well enough to be able to fully explain why it's so bad. And I know that it's, you know, it's so different in different states and even within states and different in different cities and regions. Um, but certainly, I mean, you know, civics education is certainly something that should be baked into a curriculum at almost every level. I mean, kindergartners should have a version of it. Um, and what worries me is that often, um, you know, particularly nowadays, it's often presented, uh, you, know, you know, people learn the history of protest or they learn the history of um, political change and they aren't taught that much about some very basic values. I mean, what do we mean by the rule of law? Why do we need independent courts? Um, they're not taught much about media literacy. Um, how do you read a newspaper article? How do you judge whether it's good or bad? You know, what are the clues that can tell you whether something might be true or false? Because, you know, we don't have any more of this phenomenon that, you know, you get the, a newspaper every morning. Uh, that's the only thing you read. I mean, you're seeing news all the time and information all the time. It pops up on your phone in different forms, you know, from your Facebook feed or from, you know, CNN or wherever it's from. Um, and teaching people about how to wade through that very um, difficult and complicated information ecosystem um, is something that really should be part of every um, of every school curriculum. Um, it should be part of English. It should be part of history. Um, it should be part of of you know you know even you know you know even, you know science. I mean, people need to be taught about um, how 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 does the internet work. Um, how do companies target you? People should understand what it is, what is the technology that they're using um, and have some way of, 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 of coping with it. So I think the idea of civic education should be a lot broader than just learning whatever, how to name, you know, I, I was taught actually as a child to name all the presidents. At one point I could do that. Um, and that's sort of a nice fun party trick or I could actually, um, I can name all the prepositions as well. Um, <laughs> It's a fun party trick, but being taught, you know, the, the deeper roots of these things, again, rule of law, independence of the courts, separation of powers, um, role of minority and majority, um, how do political parties function in our system? Um, all of that, I, you know, I agree, bumping that up. And, and I mean, you all, I'm sure, are in position in your communities to be trying to persuade, to lobby your schools. I mean, this is another thing that your group could do um, to do more of this. Um, um, you know, really a really important task. Yeah, good, thank you. You know, one of the things, um, you, your book is really largely about the European examples. And, and uh, I'm reminded that, uh, you know, you were in a position to, to see this coming in the United States much better than many of us were. We were sort of caught unawares by Trump and what happened, um, at least in the very beginning part of it, not later on, but are there, so Europe 
had some problems with moving towards authoritarianism in certain countries before it happened here, before this threat was here. Are there any examples of successfully pushing back against it that we might use um, to help to help inform what we do? So there are um, there are um, you know a number of examples um, ranging from again leaders who have successfully changed the subject to get people to focus on um, you know on on you know to move people away from culture wars. Um, you can look at Merkel in Germany was always very good at this. Um, you can look at um, the reformation of parties. You know we have a difficulty in our system that our party system is so stiff. And parties can really only be reformed kind of from within. I mean, the coalitions, you know, that make up the parties can be altered. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you have in Europe, for example, this flowering of green parties um, who have, you know, which are, which are not, you know, which a long time ago had the reputation of being kind of flaky, I don't know, environmental, you know, and, there, and now there's some very, I mean, Germany has a very serious, very interesting green party, which has a very interesting foreign policy. Um, and Green parties, liberal parties, um, Macron's party in France is very interesting, for example. Um, part, you know, looking to, you know, people who have been successful at fighting, at, you know, at fighting this kind of populist authoritarianism um, have often been able to create new coalitions. I mean, I think maybe that's the, that's the important yeah. lesson. Look around you, you know, who is adjacent to you? You know, who might you be able to convince to join you? Um, who are the people and groups um, in your community who might be, you know, who, who could you build an alliance with? Um, you know, politics is all about building alliances and widening and deepening your alliances. Um, and I think um, the, 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 the countries that have been successful in fighting back against this are those where successful new alliances have been created. Um, well, I, I have to jump in and um, yeah. uh, because we're just after six and I just want to, um, say thanks to my dad. And um, and I really wanna thank you so much for coming to Big Tent. And I hope you don't mind me paraphrasing you as a way to um, just sort of summarize, I think what you've given us. And um, this was something that you said at the when you appeared at the Brennan Center in August, 2020. And you said that one of the goals that you wanted to achieve with your book, Twilight of Democracy, was that it would serve as a clarion call against our complacency. And Anne, I think you achieved that goal tonight. Um, I, I know that we at Big Tent have heard you loud and clear, and I think everyone on this call has as well. And we will continue to educate ourselves and stay very, very, very diligent in our dedication to our democracy and to expand our Big Tent. So with that, I just wanna say thank you so much for spending this time with us. And if people want to stay on um, our call, my dad is gonna stay on as well to just give us an update on um, the J&J vaccine. So Anne, can't thank you enough. Thank you so much, best of luck. Um, you know, keep doing what you're doing and, and thank you all. Thanks for your time. Thank you, fantastic. <laughs>